When many of us in clinical medicine think back to our own training years, we often recall interacting with master clinicians who were skilled diagnosticians, thoughtful teachers, and role models of a compassionate bedside manner. What lessons do these master clinicians have to teach the rest of us in terms of how they learn, how their minds work, and how they became so good at what they do? I'm Vivek Murthy. Welcome to the Master Clinician Project. What follows is an interview with Dr. Ken Sack. Dr. Sack is a rheumatologist and professor of medicine emeritus at the University of California, San Francisco. He completed his MD degree at Tufts University in 1968, then completed his medical internship and second year of residency at Rochester before joining the U.S. Army from 1970 to 1972. He finished his internal medicine residency at the University of Michigan before moving to the University of Texas at Houston to establish himself as a clinician educator. He then pursued rheumatology fellowship at the University of Alabama before joining the faculty at UCSF in the Division of Rheumatology, where he remained for the duration of his career. Dr. Sack is an expert in clinical rheumatology. He's authored or co-authored numerous articles and textbook chapters and has taught and mentored countless trainees before his recent retirement from clinical practice. He was elected to the UCSF Council of Master Clinicians in 2008. In this conversation, Dr. Sack talks about how he went about building his knowledge base. He also emphasizes the importance of seeking out teaching roles, of simplifying and distilling clinical data to its essence, and being humble. I hope you find this conversation as fun and inspiring as I did. Dr. Sack, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. Let me start by asking you, as you look back at your early life in medicine, do you think you had any specific cognitive habits or learning behaviors that might have been unique to you? I don't think I consciously realized this, but it was pointed out to me by attendings more than once that one of my skills was synthesizing a lot of data and, and culling out the crap. And I hadn't thought of it, so you guys asked me to do this, but I remember when I was in an endocrine rotation at, at Michigan, a guy whose name is escaping me, and I remember I presented a case to their grand rounds because I was the resident. I think it was a complicated diabetic. I outlined things on the board, and he ripped me up and down for leaving out, you know, you didn't tell me about the 2.30 p.m. blood sugar. I mean, he just just castigated me. And I finished, and a, a, another attending there, just a brilliant guy, not because he liked me, but he, was, <laughs> but he took me aside and he said, you know, you presented a case last week and you did it again this week. You boiled it down to its essence. And he said, I just loved, you know, watching you do it. And so made me feel good. And and over the years, that's a lot of, you know, what I've done in terms of when I've written about things and from textbook chapters to otherwise, I, I really realized that I can go through stuff. And if if I can get it in a form that I can understand it, then then I figure so can, so can others. And I can learn it better if I can understand it. So I'm hearing that parsimonious thinking and reasoning was foundational for you. But how did you actually go about building your clinical knowledge base? In studying for the internal medicine boards, I read an internal medicine textbook from start to finish. 
I just thought, I, this is my only chance to do this. I read Harrison. <laughs> Tinsley Harrison wrote this. Harrison's textbook of medicine started at the beginning, went all the way to the end. Probably tell you, but by the time I got to the end, I couldn't remember half the <laughs> vitamins that I was memorizing from the beginning. But I did that, but I don't think that was a major teaching tool. That was one thing I did. The other thing was that during my fellowship, Every week, I would go to the library, and they would have a row of current journals. I would go through every table of contents, look up articles that I would like, and I would Xerox the article, and I would put them in my file. And so before even Index, it was Index Medicus at the time, but certainly before the internet and things like that, I reviewed just literature that related to things that I was interested in and or I thought would be really cool. That's how I just accumulated everything in the files that I have. I've read twice. My um, habit was to look at an article and copy it and then put it aside for a, a day or two or three and then read it again before I filed it. So it was two readings, which kind of cemented it a little more into, into, into my brain. And so that's, that's really how I learned. And how did you structure your learning and reading? How often did you read? All the time. Even when I was an intern and interns just worked and didn't read, I was reading. I wouldn't have been your favorite intern if you had been the attending because I didn't, if you didn't back up what you told me to do, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I, mean, I remember just literally refusing <laughs> to give steroids to a hepatitis patient or something because the attending told me to. I said, you don't have data to support this, you know. So I was reading a lot. So I would say, I would say at my heyday, I probably got 30 medical journals a month. Some of them were throwaways, but they were good throwaways, the kind that, you know, really uh, summarized literature, literature reviews. But I got, I got internal medicine journals. I got rheumatology journals. I was reading, uh, my family would tell you that if we were on vacation, I was reading. I loved it. You know, I That's amazing that you developed that kind of intentional learning program for yourself so early in your career and that you stuck with it and even found it to be fun. Beyond the primary textbooks and journals of that time, did you ever focus your reading on case reports or clinical problem-solving exercises? Uh Case reports, a good case report, I felt was very valuable because um, they very often describe the phenomenon that you might not, there's, I think there's two ways to use literature sometimes. One is to see a case and then read about it. The other is to be reading so much that what you've read dovetails in with what you're now seeing. My friend Herb Fred down in Texas, we were discussing a cool case of um, of a, an undiagnosed, ulcerating, destructive, cutaneous condition that cultures were negative. There was no obvious systemic disease, just was eating away at a guy's pelvis. And it was my introduction to cutaneous amoebiasis. So the next time I saw, and in fact, we had a case here a case that wound up in um, in M&M conference. And I remember the pathologist put the thing up and it was a, a brain biopsy. And all you could see were these macrophages. And I said, I've seen that before. That's not a macrophage. That's a dead amoeba. 
And he said, you're right. <laughs> it was that he said, we finally figured it out too. <laughs> it was, it was amoebiasis. So reading can, you know, I just, I just loved having this stuff somewhere, these patterns tucked away that uh, eventually came, came forth on the wards or in, in the clinic. So yeah, so re I've, reading was always part of my life. My medicine life still is. You know, that example of reading about memorizing and recalling amoebiasis is just incredible. It's a testament to the importance of reading to build one's fund of knowledge and storing away pearls and the joy that can come from knowing things and having them stored away. Maybe this is what we all mean when we use the term index of suspicion. I think the term poses the question to us, you know, have I read enough and seen enough to be able to recognize the diagnosis in the ER, in the clinic, or on the wards? It sounds like you weren't only diligent in your reading efforts. Maybe, maybe driven is a better word. What drove you to read so much? I'm gleaning that you found it to be fun and necessary to better your skills at diagnosis. But what else drove you to make reading such a strong practice? I, I practice for several different reasons, but most of what I do is for patients. Everything is for the patient, to take care of them. And so when I read, I read not only about diagnosis, or even how to go about a making a diagnosis, but the science and the art of treatment. It's most of what I do is, is treat people and realize that they rely on me for efficacy, safety, and all-around comfort and making their lives easier. So a lot of what I will read and store away has as much to do with the science of treatment. I'd also like to ask you about teaching. Early on in your career, did you ever make efforts to teach? And if so, what did those efforts involve and how often did you teach? Well, always. I mean, I would always would do it. Uh, and, and it could range from teaching the students here, from the introduction to medicine courses that started in their first year, going over cases and getting, generating some excitement about medicine, you know, for the first-year students who were just getting introduced, getting pummeled by science and, and not <laughs> seeing the light at the end of this tunnel, seeing what they were really there for. I used to love teaching physical diagnosis. Um, each month I gave a rheumatology physical diagnosis talk, but but I, I like to think that I learned the approach from people who were really good at it, and I wanted to pass it on. Um, and, and then I, you know, the person who learns about a topic is not the people who hear the talk, it's the people who prepare the talk. Those are the people who really learn it. So that was one thing I did. And why do you think you made teaching a strong practice? Certainly, it's part of the tripartite mission at academic medical centers like UCSF, but do you feel you gained anything professionally by teaching? You gain everything as a teacher. It's the same concept as when you give a talk, you're the person who learns the most. When you write an article, you're the person who learns the most. When you're teaching, everything you don't know becomes pretty obvious to you. Usually in the questions that students or residents ask, and you realize, I should know this, but I don't. Or I'm obviously not understanding it as well as I thought because I'm unable to explain it the way I need to. Um, so teaching is always a two-way street, number one. I don't teach 
in many ways the way some of the, my most revered teachers taught me, and that is by a high level of anxiety and things. I realize that there's some science and data behind the fact that you do remember things that, that when you learn them under stress. But I've never felt comfortable making somebody else uncomfortable. I've always walked this line between pointing out things that I really thought were bad habits, but as much by example as I could. So for instance, you could summarize this in two sentences instead of the 10 minutes that you just gave me. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, just, just, but, but, you know, so, so what's the problem here? You know, t- trying to teach them how to just, how to find the problem and, uh, and think about it. I'd also like to ask you about the importance of role models or mentors. As you look back on your training years and early career, did you ever seek out master clinician mentors or role models? I used to latch on to people that I admired in varying different specialties and watch them approach a patient. I always sought out people who were rigorous. There was a very brilliant pediatrician who still is active in the field of cystic fibrosis. A group of us, about three, three of us, three or four of us students, got together, walked into his office and said, would you kind of let us form a little elective with you kind of teaching us? We'll, we'll you know, see patients. And, and he did it. But I sought, I sought that out. I just sought out the good people. What do you think you gained by seeking out people who you viewed as masterful and trying to learn from them? Do you think that interacting with these master clinicians early on had any foundational impacts on your professional development? I think yes and no. As I say, you know, it, it, when, when you've arrived at a certain place, it's most of us don't really know how we got there. And I'm not sure I do, even, even though you've stimulated me to think about it. Because I do think a lot of what I really retained, I, I've learned from my own mistakes and from struggling on my own. Uh, on the other hand, um, I think a good mentor isn't didactic about teaching at all. We've had some members who are brilliant people and who are very impressive people and who will go on and on and, you know, just launch them into a topic and they'll give you everything from the basic science to, you know, differential diagnoses of things. They'll give you a nice little lecture, but I don't think as a student you might be impressed that six months from now, I'm not sure you could do anything close to that on your own. I really think good mentorship has many different flavors, but it really boils down to guidance uh, in terms of, okay, here are the mistakes I made while I've been thinking about this kind of thing or a career choice or how I think about this type of a case or a problem. And the other way is in teaching by example. I still think, and I don't think a lot of people are aware of this, but I'd rather, I'd rather have a one of our fellows, I mean, I can, I'll go over a case with them before I even see the patient. But I think most of my teaching, and I'm not sure that how much they're aware of this, I feel takes place when we both walk in the door together. But I'd rather have them watch me talk to a patient, approach them, get to the essence of the beginning of their illness or what it's done to them, more than just all the science and stuff we've talked about before, and watch me just talk to them. And I've learned it's great when the chief resident teaches the senior resident who teaches the junior resident who teaches the intern. But when the person who's been doing something for 30, 40 years and has been seasoned by the battlefield and, and hasn't just 
made the same mistake over and over again and called it experience, but has learned. To watch them is a, is a gift. Are you able to give us an example of someone you consider to be a master clinician? And could you talk a bit about how that person was masterful? I can give you a really good example. During the height of the AIDS epidemic, I was general medicine attending in those days. Um, and that's when Harry was young, Harry Hollander. Harry and I go back a long way. And I remember the times that I'd have a patient and we asked Harry to come and see the patient. They'd be these complicated, you know, seven different tumors and stuff going on. And Harry's special genius, he would leave a note two inches long, and then you'd realize that in, in about four sentences, Harry had distilled the essence of the case, come up with a logical way of approaching treatment, and it was done. It was jaw-dropping whenever he did it. And I always said, you know, if I can strive <laughs> to just you know, to get to this point. And I, I, I always do strive to do that. I've never gotten to Harry's level of doing that. But but that's the kind of a thing that I think is is critical. And Harry embodied that. And do you have any other examples of habits or practices that you took away from role models you interacted with? It's hard. I, I guess I learned different things from different people. There were people had big impacts on me because everybody has an impact when you're a student. It started off with Louis Weinstein, the, the, an absolute giant in the field of infectious disease. And I remember as a student, my first presentation to him, and I had my little card there, and I had read the first sentence about this patient, and he took my card, and he ripped it, and, <laughs> it, and he said, okay, now do it. But I learned that if I didn't have it in my brain, Having it on the card wasn't a really effective way of looking at a patient. There were people whom I watched sit down at an eyeball level at a patient's bedside. Some of even when I was in the army, my friend whom I still keep contact with, who's a nephrologist, Steve Renner, he would just come to a patient's bedside, sit down at the bedside, look him right in the eyeball, and just hold their hand and just say, you know, how did this start or something. I just it. it resonated with me because it's what I really believed in. I remember a gastroenterologist walking to the bedside and the first thing he would do is just, you could just see him looking at this patient's abdomen, just seeing about peristalsis. And, and I remember thinking, that is really cool. Uh, cardiologists who would start their exam at the foot of the bed looking for asymmetry in the chest for congenital heart disease um, before they even did anything else. So different things from different from their approach to their rigor. I think in some ways in medicine we're all like kids in that regard. We'll take what we can from the people who are prepared to give it to us. Well, it really sounds like you went through your training with an open mind as to various clinical practices or approaches, and that you accumulated practices that you admired incidentally over time. Um, that really resonates with my own experience as well. You never know from whom or on what day you'll see a clinical practice or habit that you sort of want to endocytose and make yours. Did you ever make a practice of tracking patients over time or 
following up on the outcomes of your prior clinical decisions? Yeah, I think, first of all, there's something about reviewing something after the fact that can cement it into you. So you, you can look back on a month of your service. I had pneumonia, or we thought he had pneumonia, but he really had sarcoid, and I really blew it. And so having a pile of cards and reviewing the things that you've seen, I saw four diabetic ketoacidosis, I converted my PPD because I thought this guy had metastatic cancer and he had miliary tuberculosis. I really did. That kept me out of Vietnam, actually. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> this guy had lumps in his liver and everything else, lumps in his lungs, lumps everywhere, coffin hacking in the ICU. And we were sure that, you know, it was just, where was this frickin' tumor? And autopsy showed tuberculosis hmm. everywhere. But, uh, but reviewing what you've done and then just, just thinking about the fact that if you haven't watched pneumonia to its you know final conclusion six weeks later, you'll never know how long it takes to clear a chest radiograph or how wiped out people can get just from simple pneumonia or whatever. If you can't follow a disease, if you can't see that this particular infection lasts this long or peaks like this, it gets better like that. If you haven't watched patterns of diseases, you can read about it until you're blue in the face. I don't think you'll really internalize it. So follow up, whether it's to the autopsy table, one hopes not, or just seeing the patient again in clinic, you know, after they've been in the hospital, or seeing the patient the next day and seeing what became of them and seeing what you thought was one thing was really another is just invaluable. Well, Dr. Sack, we so appreciate all of your thoughtful insights and answers today. Before we conclude, do you have any other advice for trainees today or examples of habits or approaches that you think were valuable early on? I've always come at this from the point of view that I wasn't the brightest bulb in the chandelier and I had to work harder to to get all this stuff. If that's the way it feels to me. I don't have this photographic memory that some of my colleagues seem to have. I have to repeat it and repeat it and, and drum it into myself. But I've always felt I'd rather view myself as being not quite good enough than too good. You know, and so that's, and that's why that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> well, Dr. Sack, we appreciate your wisdom. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Master Clinician Project. You can find us online at www.masterclinicianproject.com, on Twitter at mcproject12, or as an audio-only podcast on Spotify, or really anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in, and see you next time.